Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, and thanks for listening and making commitment to your learning. We hope that you are doing well. We are your hosts. I am Yvonne Brandenburg, and I am joined by the evanescent, exemplary, and imperial <laughs> Jordan Porter. Ooh. I know. Wow. I was like, ooh, that's a good word. <laughs> I feel like I should have like a crown on or something. You do. You have the internal medicine for vet techs crown on right now. Oh, cute. Um, I hope it doesn't mess up my messy bun. No, it it definitely doesn't. It accentuates it. Oh, I feel so fancy. (laughs) You definitely should feel fancy with that. (laughs) (laughs) I like it when you do the words. Makes me feel (laughs) good. I know, right? The the words are words are fun. Yeah, makes me feel sparkly on the inside. Right. We're going to run out of letters soon and we're going to have to figure something else to do. Um, Cause I feel like we're, we've already repeated some letters. <laughs> I mean, we probably have, but there's always like, there's like a billion words. So <laughs> we just true. This is true. <laughs> However, we have not kept track of like what words we've already said. That's very so. true. I could have already done these words at some point and not even, I mean, now. I don't think you did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, how was your week? Uh, it was, it was crazy. Um, I'm still, uh, my doctor was still out this week. So kind of like all over the place, which is never fun. I, it's like, if you feel like you're lost, like you're not home <laughs> mm-hmm. when you're not in your own department with your doctor, especially since we've like Sarah and I have been on her team for past what, I don't know at least five years so not having her there has been very like blah what are we doing um yeah gets you out of your routine yeah but it was I mean it was kind of nice because I had an additional day off this week um because they were like well I we don't know where to put you you want to take a day off and I was like yes so I did take a Friday off (laughs) yeah and it was it was cool because um we got part of our fence replaced that had fallen yeah, down in the that. big windstorm. And so, um, it's pretty, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, Ooh, the rest of my fences look horrible. Um, so it's like, <laughs> you know, you're an adult win, like, uh, uh, because of my quarantine, um, when I had COVID, I became TikTok obsessed. Um, oh. <laughs> so, cause all I did was watch TikToks and it, there's like this one on there. It says, how do you know you're an, like, tell me you're an adult without telling me you're an adult. And some lady got like a new washer and dryer. And I was like, dude, that's a really cool washer and dryer. And I was like, I mean, I get excited <laughs> over a new vacuum cleaner. So yeah. like, I get it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So they, uh, dude, it was crazy. These two guys just like whipped out the fence and like, I don't know, 10 hours. It was insane, but it was cool. Like I would just like occasionally look and see what they were doing. And it was amazing to see like craftsmanship like that just at work and how efficient they were and everything. So that was really cool. And then at the same time I was working on my she shed because 
that is the one thing I said for, um, I have this coming week off. I work one day, but, um, I have these extra days and, and I will get the she shed done. That is the goal is to get all the walls done this week, which I started, I, the drywall is up and I'm, and I did mudding and taping Friday and yesterday. Um, cause today is Sunday and I won't be able to do anything today, but it's supposed to rain. So that's okay. <laughs> hmm. but it's beautiful yeah. here. We went out on the boat yesterday. Oh, I'm finally back at work after having COVID. For, so. Forever. <laughs> well, that's oh good. God. I'm glad you're feeling better too. Yeah, I do feel better. I definitely still have like muscle aches and stuff like that, but I started going back to the gym again and just like trying to get back into a normal routine because, you know, mentally I get more unstable, the more my routine is disrupted. (laughs) Yeah. I think Um, that's a universal uh, statement there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just like lately though, it's like, I mean, I'm off what I made a joke to my boss the other day. I was like, dude, I think in the past like month and a half, I maybe worked 10 days like because of just like quarantining and just making sure that everybody's safe. And then I actually got COVID and then like, So it's just like, every time I feel like I'm back into my normal routine. So like, it's been a week of a good routine. Something is bound to happen. (laughs) Like, yeah, I feel like this last year is kind of just like, you know, hit you with like a baseball bat. Just saying you had some crazy stuff happening this last year. Dude, I'm dude. It's, it's been a very, very tough year, which we'll talk about during the mental health series. Cause like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> my mental health went down the drain <laughs> at the <laughs> beginning of 2020 <laughs> oh, yeah oh my god seriously <sighs> but yeah. obviously I'm doing better like I said I, I've been going back to the gym and I'm getting like really into it which is nice because I have a friend who is like super into like working out too so her and I like talk about it a lot and it's just helping me feel like motivated again um well, that's good. and then yesterday we went out on the boat and I caught two beautiful redfish and one of them was like 21 inches and it was gorgeous it was like the prettiest golden color like I was of course I rubbed it in my husband's face and I was like I caught dinner like because he (laughs) he caught I think like one or two fish and they just weren't like keepable size and like I was the only one who's able to catch keepable fish and nice yeah 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 so it felt nice though to like do normal things yeah I know I was excited like this last week um Cause my husband and I, we have our best friends that usually <laughs> without COVID we're literally at their house every Saturday, just like yeah. hanging out, have dinner, hang out. Um, and that routine has also been disrupted this last year, but it's kind of exciting because me and my best friend, like both of us work in veterinary medicine. So we both are now totally vaccinated. Her, uh, has husband is like, stays at home with the kids so like he's not out and about mm-hmm. so really like at this point it's really just my husband <laughs> who needs to get his vaccine but we're like you know two out of the four of us being vaccinated we're like all right you know obviously we're not going to swap spit with anybody yeah right so, but we're going to hang out <laughs> so so we started hanging out with them again because things have settled down a little bit here in California yeah enough that with the vaccines we're like all right we're feeling a little bit more comfortable so yeah that's been been nice so we got to do that last night because i really missed it (laughs) right it's very much needed i'm supposed to fall into the category i think starting like tomorrow 
uh, it's like category one B or whatever is when they're going to start vaccinating. And, um, so people with like chronic conditions, like asthma, yeah. which is me, um, which I say between that and the lupus, I would think you would totally get vaccinated. I think so too. But the, here's my dilemma is that like, I, I do plan on getting vaccinated. Yes. But like, because I just had COVID, my lupus is flaring right now. And like, so like yeah, my- I think when I went to get mine, I think they said, if you've had it or tested positive within the last, like at least two weeks. Yeah. Um, I think they don't recommend it because you're still getting over things. So. Yeah. Well, and then with the lupus and stuff, it's just like my joints have been bothering me really bad. I'm getting my little skin rashes that I get with this. And like, so I talked to my office manager, who's also like an epidemiologist and she's working on this board of like people who like, they do these giant pods where they give out the COVID vaccine and stuff like that. So I was like, wow. what do you think like I should do? Like, when should I get it? Cause like, I definitely, I mean, like I feel more normal obviously, but like my normal is not normal. Oh, right. And so like, she was like, well, if I'm- I were you, I would wait a couple months. Cause I don't want it to flare to the point where like, I'm, I can't walk or like, I'm in so much pain. Well, and I think, I think it'd be interesting to talk to your doctor too about the whole, because when we talk about your immune system, right. The titers, it's like, we have, uh, it's like, um, vaccine versus actually having the thing, right? Like you, you have more memory if your body has fought it off technically, then if mm-hmm. you get a vaccine and then your yeah. immune system responds. So it'd be interesting to see if they say you definitely need it since you had it, or if you had it, like when they recommend, like, is it six months or, you know what I mean? Like, is it four to six months? So it'd be interesting to talk to your doctor about that. They originally, we originally talked about like before I had COVID, we originally talked about me getting the vaccine, but maybe only getting one vaccine instead of the two. Mm. Um, because I've, I mean, I have a history of vaccine reactions in the first place. So it's like one of those oh. things where it's just like, it's a little isn't, scary isn't for me. A new one? <laughs> isn't there a new one right now? That's just one vaccine instead of the series of two. Oh, I don't know. I think I've only there's ever a heard new about one. the two. I think there's a new one that I don't know if it's in final approval or if it just got approved i feel like i'm gonna say this and i don't know if this is the right name but i think it's the johnson and johnson brand oh maybe Um, so it'd be interesting like seriously i think you should talk to your i was gonna say your primary vet (laughs) your primary primary vet yeah (laughs) Um, well, I mean, I have been talking to my say. vet about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I have just a, ask I, your doctor because I mean, who knows? Like, especially if you've had a reaction, yeah. If there, if that one vaccine versus the series of two, especially since you've had it, I bet, I bet your doctor would probably recommend that instead. You know? Yeah, probably. I have a follow up appointment coming up soon. It's just like it was one of those things where, like, before I even have. Co- had COVID they're like well make sure you take your EpiPen with you and like I would probably do it at an actual medical facility versus one of these like roadside drive-throughs and like you would probably want to stay for longer than the normal 15 minutes and I was like scary (laughs) yeah one one of my doctors had like a pretty severe reaction to the first one but she was like I have to get fully vaccinated because of like other health concerns she has yeah so she like uh, went to a specialist and they basically gave her this regimen of 
antihistamines mm. <laughs> and it was like it was kind of an insane regimen I don't even remember but I remember her telling me it was two different antihistamines like mm-hmm. I, I'm not do please do not take this as medical advice because I am not remembering this correctly but it was like Claritin like three tabs every like six hours before and mm-hmm. then like something after like it was insane amount of antihistamines yeah no, they I told to her to that. get before and after so I had to do that anytime I have like a severe reaction to a cat I have to take um 75 milligrams of Benadryl every six yeah. hours and then uh, they also recommend that I take hydroxyzine every eight hours when I'm having like an allergic reaction because I'll get like really bad like bronchitis pneumonia e oh, kind of things right. if I yeah let my allergy yeah, with my cat stuff, out of, my feline asthma gets out of control. <laughs> and <laughs> oh my god, do you start um, bringing up some hairballs? <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's not like, vomiting. She's just vomiting. It's, <laughs> yeah. I use the arrow cat chamber sometimes oh with my, my inhaler. <laughs> oh <laughs> I my breathe, god, <laughs> I breathe nice and deep for 10, 10 breaths. <laughs> oh my god, I feel like I need an arrow cat right now. My nose is so stuffy again. Oh my god, I meant to send you pictures. Okay, we really <laughs> got to start this episode soon but i meant to send you pictures because all the pollen is out um and so the trees are just yellow right now it's just like you drive down the road it's very very pretty there's like yellow flowers like everywhere so it's just gonna get worse it doesn't go away until usually like what it's march right now so probably the end of may early june I can hear your allergies, your stuffy face. I know it's because you're talking about the yellow pollen and so I just had to take some fluticasone because it makes me yeah. makes my nose all swollen and <laughs> yeah your, your face is like oh I heard, I heard the word oh. pollen <laughs> I'm like oh my uh, my my um antihistamines haven't kicked in and we're talking about pollen oh, mm. I know it's it's crazy because at work when we come in we always have to answer those questions about have you been exposed to COVID yeah are you exhibiting any of these signs and I'm like but they had to qualify it that are they put in there that is unexpected because so many of us were like yes we have runny noses and itchy eyes and they're like okay not allergies because that's that's expected yeah <laughs> so it was funny they had to like qualify it because everybody was like yes <laughs> I believe it so but anyway uh, so this week might as well get into the um the topic here. This week we are going to be discussing gastrointestinal strictures. I, I'll kind of get into it. It's not yet race approved, but we are very much one step closer to race approval. We will let everybody know okay. when it's approved for race approved CE. Um, but I'm so excited about it. <laughs> I know me too. I'm so excited to just like have it finally completed, but so you can do the podcast course at internal medicine for vet membership.com. Um, but non-members can use it as self-study. Um, and then of course, obviously our members should see when it pops up up there too, because I'll, I'll post the quizzes once we actually get our race approval. Um, yep. but this week we're going to be talking gastrointestinal strictures. I'm not being very specific, um, about what kind of strictures we're talking about, just because I'm going to talk about a few, but, towards the end of my notes here, I'm going to be really kind of focusing on esophageal strictures versus anything else. And I'll explain yeah. why, because I did write this all down. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and I think um, that's probably the most common ones that exactly. we see too. So yeah. yeah. 
So what a stricture is, it's a pathologic narrowing of the lumen. So we've already discussed in several past episodes, <laughs> <laughs> like the past three what weeks, the heck the what the lumen, lumen is. <laughs> um, now, strictures can affect any portion of the GI tract, but like I said, for this episode, we're, we're going to mostly kind of stick with esophageal strictures just because that is the most commonly seen stricture. And then colonic strictures are also there that we I would say that we see kind of like second if I had to rate them. You know what's um, crazy about that is literally this last week, you saw we a had stricture? a colonic stricture in a young kitten and we had to do the procedure. So I'll definitely talk about that when we get there. Yeah, definitely. I've only seen a handful of them. Esophageal strictures are definitely more more common, Um, but colonic strictures are obviously also seen in veterinary medicine. And then there are duodenal strictures. So like strictures within the duodenum, Um, it is rare in veterinary medicine and hasn't really been reported in the canine species. Um, So what is most often identified is usually a stricture due to another disease process or insult within the duodenum. Um, and the majority of these published cases have been like attributed to like ongoing, like inflammatory bowel disease or mucosal ulceration, um, NSAID usage, obviously neoplastic malignancies because cancer can do whatever it wants. And even pancreatitis, which I found mind blowing when I found this information, because I was like, I've never seen a duodenal stricture. I've seen masses cause like obstruction but i've never seen it cause like a duodenal stricture it's interesting that it doesn't talk about foreign bodies well that that kind of falls under the mucosal ulceration okay okay i was like like, wait a second (laughs) yeah that's where i because any sort of like trauma to the tissue can cause yeah. ulceration and if it's traumatic enough like a linear foreign body is very traumatic Ugh, or yeah. you got to think too there's like, like a foreign body that like a um one that's just kind of sitting there for a while yeah like our esophageal strictures usually happen <laughs> like, yeah. yeah um but you got to think though too say that a dog did have a foreign body surgery and they can get strictures from scar tissue very true um, i've definitely seen that definitely seen that they can get like adhesions that cause strictures so i think that's where most of the duodenal strictures are seen um mm-hmm. but i've never seen one um strictures though seen one yeah I, I don't i don't think i've ever have that hasn't been like somehow related to like some sort of like cancer but but not yeah. like specifically just a stricture yeah i was so. gonna say it's usually a mass kind of effect and then but we don't really, I mean, I guess, I guess technically that's a stricture, but we don't really call it a stricture because it's no, it's like a mass. It's a mass. Like, yeah. Like an I've seen mass is kind of, I've seen about. like pyloric masses. Oh, those suck. Um, yeah. and, and those obviously like it's a pyloric outflow obstruction. Yeah. Um, not technically classified as a stricture, but anyway, um strictures can be divided though into benign and malignant um and it's usually based upon like their site of where it's occurring and this is usually intramural or intrinsic um or extrinsic which is extramural so if you go back to our anatomy and physiology episode 69 we talk about those layers so but you gotta think is it considered benign if it's intramural versus malignant extramural or no not so it's divided 
Okay, so I did I did write what we talk about. <laughs> um, but no, it seems like the extramural are like the benign ones and then intramural are malignant because I feel like intramural, you expect it to kind of get worse and like you can't really, depending on where it is, I, we'll get there. So okay. the most common form is the intramural stricture and this can be congenital or acquired. Um, congenital structures are considered rare um, and they what they do is they appear as like stenotic rings or um, like membranes usually and this frequently occurs like in the not frequently I guess like most commonly occurs in the esophageal wall so you'll get those congenital esophageal structures just because of like extra hmm. tissue yeah. Okay. And then acquired strictures, which is what we probably see most often occurs yeah. like secondary to injury or like severe esophagitis. Um, sometimes you can have like severe, um, like gastric juices in the esophagus from like backflow. Yeah. And that can extend into the submucosa or the muscle layer of the esophageal wall. And that can mm. create a stricture. Um, healing. The other one I think of is, um, doxycycline. Yeah. Like burns, like chemical burns. Yep. <laughs> That's basically what that is. Yep. Um, and then of course there's like healing. So this is where I was talking about where, um, if you do like a foreign body surgery or something like that, there can be Ugh. healing by intramural fibrosis and these lesions can lead to stricture formation as well. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense because scar tissue, right. Is it's caused by inflammation and then it, it heals together and part of what a scar does is it constricts because it pulls the tissues together. So it makes sense that if there is tissue damage and it's constricting, the other thing too, if, if you remember from anatomy and physiology at some point, um, scar tissue is more friable or well, it's less stretchy and forgiving compared to mm -hmm. what it was before and it's not as strong as the tissues before so you've got this like scarring down of tissues and it just and especially because the lumen is a round thing right it's like mm -hmm. it's like a balloon that kind of just pinches together and then that's where the problem happens because it's not stretching like it would normally do or yeah it doesn't you know. allow substance to move through like it normally would um, yeah. and then, uh, extramural structures can be congenital or acquired as well, but obviously same thing. Congenital forms are certainly the most common, um, versus with the intramural congenital is pretty rare. The most frequent causes for these congenital abnormalities include like vascular ring, um, anomalies, abscess formations, lung masses, uh, enlarged thoracic lymph nodes and neoplasia. And I, I say enlarged thoracic lymph nodes because I'm thinking of like the esophagus, but it really yeah. can be just enlarged lymph nodes anywhere that could just be yeah. pressing. And that's I was going to say, and that's, that's one where if you have a cat that hairball obstructs, mm -hmm. biopsy the lymph nodes near it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, because I've seen you, so many cats just come back with GI lymphoma because that lymph node has constricted and caused a stricture. Which and that happens a lot that, too, like around the colon as well, mm -hmm. like in dogs yep. and cats, not a lot, but it happens. Mm -hmm. And that's not, I guess when I think of a stricture, I think of an actual like scar tissue stricture, 
But yeah. a stricture is literally that anything that compresses something that something else should be going through. Right. Which so, is so weird because I don't think of it that way either. Like no. I should, but I don't. I think I of- should. But yeah, like a mass pressing on somewhere on the bow is considered a stricture of that bow because it's like constricting it down. Yeah. But really the cause of it is mass and not a stricture per se. Like if you remove the mass, then everything is back to normal. Right. At least in the guts. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Maybe not everywhere else, but in the guts, we're good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then most strictures, if we do develop a stricture in the esophagus, most of that tends to happen in the thoracic portion of the esophagus. So not higher up in the, in the cervical portion of the, um, like, I think the majority of the strictures I've seen have always been right before that cardiac sphincter. (laughs) Right. Well, because the cardiac sphincter is doing its job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's keeping things from moving one direction or the other. So I may or may not be gravity and all that. I may or may not be that type of person, but I'm totally like a stricture to a cardiac sphincter because I'm like, no, I'll do it. And then like, oh my God, you're so funny. I'll just like take over the job and just be like, I got this. I got this. This is totally my job. And then whoever's behind me, AKA the cardiac sphincter is like, what the hell, dude? (laughs) This is my job. Oh my God. So funny. I'm telling you, my analogies are like, I keep people entertained. Well, I mean, hopefully we do. I like that you kind of are rolling your eyes and you're like, oh, okay, I'm let's, let's move on. <laughs> oh my God. I'm totally not rolling at you. Whatever. Oh yeah. It must just be the video like cutting out. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a little bit of delay. I'm going to start saying that too to Matt. He'll be like, why did you roll your eyes at me? I'm like, it must just be like a bad internet connection. Like, it's what? a glitch in the matrix. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> My body just glitched. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, gosh. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> we have to keep people entertained. I mean, I entertain myself. Let's be real. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we just have to, right? Anyway, I entertain myself. So that's, that's what matters. Um, <laughs> so our history questions, how it might present. Now, this is specifically where I'm going to yeah. talk about like more esophageal versus like anything else, just because that is mostly what we're, we're going to see. Um, obviously depending on the cause of said stricture, we can see it in dogs or cats. Um, and at any age, any breed, because again, we've already talked about how it can be congenital. So there are our babies and our puppies and kittens that we can see it in. Yvonne said earlier that she saw one in a kitten earlier this week. Um, most cases of our esophageal strictures in dogs and cats occur from like reflux esophagitis. So that's what I was talking about where that gastric acid just kind of. Well, and I think, I think people or clients don't realize that regurgitation is a problem like, mm-hmm. or sometimes they don't even recognize regurgitation because sometimes dogs and cats can have that sneaky regurge where it's just a they little just bit swallow it. Yeah. And they do the lip smacking or they do like a little cough and like, that's it. Um, and sometimes we don't realize it's happening until we like do the scope and see mm-hmm. the, the horrible esophageal, like oh, rawness. Yeah. I was like the erosion <laughs> and the mad part of it. Um, yeah. and so I think, I think that's, that can sometimes be sneaky for clients um, because they for don't sure. realize what it is. 
Yeah. But I did find it interesting that most of the cases of esophageal strictures in dogs and cats, like, so it does occur like secondarily from like reflux, but usually reflux during general anesthesia or a hiatal disease. So of course we have our dogs who do have chronic like regurge and they have a hiatal hernia. Yeah. Well, that's another reason why it's really important when we're doing anesthesia. If you see anything come up, suction it out. Um, like if, especially if they're still intubated, like suction out the esophagus, um, because that, that acid sitting there is not yeah. good for the esophagus yeah. at all. And then two from like the passage and removal of esophageal or gastric foreign bodies. So this is like more yeah. of a, like Yvonne and I thing where like, we're <laughs> doing scopes. Um, oh, that freaking potato that kept me late that one time. <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, Mind you, so that was an esophageal foreign body. It sat there for a couple days and it was just raw, like just eroded esophagus. But I mean, the same thing can happen when we pull something out of the stomach. Um, Especially if you've got something that could be a little jagged or sharp. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, because you you got to think. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to think too that we're opening the cardiac sphincter because the scope has to fit through. Then it's cardiac sphincter staying open a little bit too. We're bringing some of that gastric secretion with us. So of course, too, when we're doing, I say we, but when my doctor is doing scopes and I'm assisting, like (laughs) we have a very good habit of suctioning out that esophagus really well. And what we'll do too, we, again, what he will do is he'll flush (laughs) it with water and kind of like dilute it out a little bit and then suction and then dilute it out a little bit Mm -hmm. with water and suction. Um, as long as our cuff is good on our trach tube and stuff like that, but we try to, we're, we're pretty ballooning is a difficult and kind of sketchy procedure for me. So any way I can prevent that, I'm just kind of like, Ooh, yeah, I, I I haven't done a lot of ballooning, but yeah, every time I do it, I'm just like, I always feel like, Hey, I'm going to pop the balloon or B I'm (laughs) going to pop the esophagus. Right. (laughs) You're like, one or the other's given up. Yes. Like one of these, like, there's no way that this balloon can get any more filled, which we'll talk about it, but I want to know if you have this specific tool that inflates it. Oh, probably. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You probably do. You, you have like better equipment than I do, but oh God, whatever. Well, you're a bigger practice. Like, okay. Uh, yeah, that's true. So anyway, moving on. So abnormal healing can also cause is a common cause for strictures in dogs and cats. So abnormal healing from like a previous esophageal surgery. And again, this mm. is where we can see those duodenal strictures or a colonic stricture if they've had a previous surgery. Um, especially like a esophageal rupture. surgery. <sighs> yeah. I've never. The only wood. esophageal surgeries I've ever seen has been fish hooks. So I've never even seen one of those, but you got to think that Mm, yeah. no probably not i wonder if like a tracheal tear could cause like extra scarring that would cause an esophageal stricture probably i mean i feel like any type of excessive scarring i don't i uh, i don't think i've seen it with tracheal tears because i've never that's seen just it with the tracheal tissue, tears i just that's just the tissue around it it's like that that doesn't it doesn't usually affect the esophagus painfully. and usually that's just like a tiny little hole Hopefully. Causing all sorts <laughs> of problems. Yeah. 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 Um, severe esophagitis, like re- uh, resulting from like persistent vomiting, vomiting of hairballs, like Yvonne said, um, acids or alkali ingestion. So dogs who like to eat batteries for some reason, Ooh, obviously seriously. there's some penetrating lesions. So these are lesions that are on one organ and then just like to invade another. 
Um, and so that can definitely cause stricturing granulomas caused by this parasite that I've <sighs> never heard of. And I'm probably going to butcher the name, but I'm going to try it anyway. It's Spirocerca lupi parasite. I've never heard of it, but any kind of parasite anywhere grosses me out. We already know that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, which I should have looked up a picture of this thing, but I mean, like it causes a granuloma, like the body's trying to get rid of it. So, yeah. um, and then of course, neoplasia are all, all possible causes for stricturing in a patient's body. Have you, um, when we talk about acid and alkaline ingestion, this is something too, to kind of keep in the back of your mind. We no longer recommend hydrogen peroxide mm. <laughs> for a very good reason because it can cause issues, um, because it's not meant to be ingested. Um, and it can cause esophageal issues or stomach issues. So just, you know, take that when you're talking to clients, again, we no longer really recommend hydrogen peroxide ingestion. So clinical signs for these are definitely similar to the clinical signs that we're going to see with things like foreign bodies. So that includes things like regurgitation, vomiting, drooling, dysphagia, pain. Um, I like to say like hard swallowing. Sometimes you'll see that. And then of course, like usually they're going to regurgitate, depending on where the stricture is. Uh, if it's colonic, then what we'll see is tenismus, constipation, hematochesia. See, I said hematochesia this week and not hematochesia. Um, those, all those things could be present. Um, we talked about that in our constipation episode about how stricture should be on the list if we're seeing any of these signs. And then of course, too, um, they can get secondary aspiration pneumonia. So they can have clinical signs such as fever, cough, dyspnea, um, and that would be due to the aspiration pneumonia, not necessarily the stricture itself, but if they have an esophageal stricture, a lot of times we'll see secondary aspiration pneumonia with that. And then typically, oh, yeah, it's got to go somewhere, right? <laughs> the esophagus is like, nope. And then the trachea is like, I'll take it. <laughs> oh no, poor esophagus. And then the body's like, stop helping. It's <laughs> right. supposed to be one direction only. Yeah. <laughs> Clinical signs typically occur one to two weeks after like the primary cause. So after like injury or onset of esophagitis or after general anesthesia. So if you've done like, say you had this procedure that was a one hour long dental procedure. And then one to two weeks later, they're like, my dog is regurgitating and drooling a lot and not seeming to want to eat. Like they seem interested in eating, but then like they try to eat and then they just stop. Um, you definitely want to maybe investigate for an esophageal stricture. Um, yeah, I think, I, um, the most recent one I had was after a dental procedure. Um, and so that's just, again, keep that in mind when your patients are under anesthesia, you know, um, not only do we not want water from the mouth going into the esophagus, which is why we do like the pack in the back of the throat kind of thing. You also want to just make sure that there isn't a bunch of regurge coming from mm -hmm. the stomach and sitting in the esophagus because, you know, sphincters relax under anesthesia it just kind of happens. So, um, it's part of the reason why, like, sometimes we'll have the head elevated a little bit to potentially mm -hmm. make it so the gastric juices don't go up the They wrong stay way. where they belong. Um, exactly. Um, so it's just, you know, kind of keep that in mind. And then for us in internal medicine, 
you know, if we have a esophageal foreign body, you know, one to two weeks after is it, that's that crucial healing time. Mm-hmm. So we just need to make sure that our clients are very much aware to be monitoring very closely for any signs of a oh, potential yeah. stricture after an esophageal foreign body. Yeah. Then, those are the clients that go home ugh. with discharge instructions that say what to watch for. And we keep pretty close tabs. Usually that first like 10 to 14 days yep. of like how those patients are feeling afterwards. How's it going? They still eating? <laughs> any <laughs> regurge? That was creepy. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so chronic or neoplastic strictures are usually associated with like other clinical signs such as weight loss or malnutrition. And then <laughs> poor guys. Yeah. Th- those are a bummer too, because I'm like, man, they had to have been sick for a while or it's one of those strictures yeah. that's open just enough where you're not seeing a lot of regurg or vomiting, but yet they're clearly eating less and they, there is still some regurg or vomiting. Um, or again, well, depending on where it is in the body, like if it's I was a say, yeah, small we, bowel I structure. One, I had one that was a small bowel structure and, um, the dog just, they couldn't understand why he wasn't eating as well. He was losing weight. Um, and they finally didn't explore and they were like, Oh, here it is. Um, I think mm-hmm. it was like some chronic, like foreign body thing. Oh um, yeah. That caused the stricture. And so we obviously I imagine, got like, rid of that and then the dog gained weight and looked amazing afterwards it was so crazy I imagine that like a migrating foreign body maybe like if it got Ooh. stuck in the wall and then like didn't migrate really any further that definitely would cause anyway yeah well and not only that but like um if there was a puncturing foreign body and and they mm-hmm. did do surgery and the body heals it right because it like omentalizes it and heals it and unfortunately that can cause a stricture too, because the body's trying oh, yeah. to seal it off. So, you know, we, that, that's when I've seen strictures, um, in foreign body patients, um, like those golden retrievers that have had like four mm-hmm. surgeries. Oh yeah. And they just have like adhesions <laughs> anywhere, everywhere. Yeah. And they're like, oh. well, um, it's now just a functional um, stricture instead of a foreign body stricture. Yeah, those are brutal. I we've had we had a golden one set. Yeah, it was like his fourth foreign body explorer, and like the third one, like in the surgical notes, there was just like it was just adhesions everywhere, and they strongly recommended not doing surgery again on the dog. Yeah, and so yeah, that was that was several years ago, but that was sad. I was gonna say the other the other part of this we kind of talked about it is for colonic strictures. Um, I've actually seen a couple now where yes, they're straining to defecate, but they're also extremely painful. Mm-hmm. Um, so like one of like the kitten that we had this week, I mean, it was, I don't know, um, six to nine months old, I think. Um, it like any time that it needed to go to the bathroom, it would just start screaming. Um, and then, you know, touching its butt, trying to get a temperature on this cat was not an option because it would scream its head off and and i've seen that with like puppies too they just get very reactive and very painful for strictures um and so that's just something too that like you can talk to clients about and say hey you know when they try to defecate are they painful and some of them are very like vocal about it so um and then and that can also be like parasites parasites can cause strictures. So just, you know, kind of keep that in the back of your head, especially if they're younger 
patients that are having issues with pooping. Yeah. Yum. <clears throat> Multiple strictures though, however, are less commonly observed. Thank goodness. Cause one stricture enough is hard. I think the last esophageal stricture though, that I saw, um, it was really, really bad. And it was just like one after the next. And there was like four oh. of them in the esophagus, but they were all kind of like lined up together, but we would get one ballooned open and then we go down just like a little bit further and it'd be strictured again. Like it was just like, it was, oh. it was almost like one very, very long stricture it was bad that's crazy that sounds horrible yeah Poor thing it was a frenchie of course it was a frenchie yeah <laughs> oh frenchies so our differential diagnosis list though is smaller than i have in done in the last couple of weeks so right <laughs> <laughs> i put, put mega esophagus on the differential list just even though it's the opposite problem it still causes similar symptoms regurgitation vomiting um drooling aspiration pneumonia aspiration pneumonia yep exactly (laughs) foreign bodies of course masses and neoplasia so including those like lymphadenopathy um changes in the gi tract like from lymphoma and things like that gastritis or colitis or esophagitis all the itises that (laughs) from the mouth to the hiney like (laughs) (laughs) oh so true and then, of course, Addison's disease, because it looks like a GI disease, and then thyroid disease True. as well. So, anything else in there? I think that's all of them. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like the typical internal medicine list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just copy and paste it to every medical record that comes through oh IM store. <laughs> <laughs> this is our differential list so far. Well, and I think that's, you know, our our history is going to really help narrow down what our potential differential diagnosis is, because it's like, it's like the differential diagnosis before you see the actual pet. Yes. And then once you actually do like your like diagnostics and tag and your, your physical exam and stuff like that. And you're like, okay, now I'm going to rule it down to, or diagnose, you know, narrow it down to like, these five instead of this 15. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's what I do. Like when I see a client come in, in for a specific complaint in my brain, I make a differential diagnosis list. So I know which questions to ask. And then like, I can kind of like check off like certain things. So I'm like, do they go yeah. swimming in ponds? And they're like, no, this dog hates swimming, never drinks out of ponds, never goes swimming in ponds. I'm like, all right, leptos crossed off. Like, <laughs> like you know, it's just like one of those yeah. things where I like, I make that list in my brain. And then I'm like, it helps me to determine what questions to ask. Like it really does. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's one of those skills as a technician. Um, you kind of start to develop that more, mm-hmm. the, the more cases you're seeing, right? So if you're seeing kidney cases, these are the questions you're going to, you're going to focus a little bit more on, right? Or, you know, if you've got somebody coming in for respiratory, you focus on these questions. Mm-hmm. So you still want to ask all the questions, but there may be some questions that you get a little bit more specific about because, um, you know, when you first start working in internal medicine, your doctor goes, so did you ask about blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah. no, I didn't know I needed to ask that. That's not on my general list, but yeah, yeah, no, you, know, you start knowing what to ask <laughs> frequently with those weird random cases. I'm like, so has your dog ever left the state of Georgia? And like, because I, I gotta know if Blasto's on this list or not. Like, yeah. I know like that the travel history and yep. other pets in the household exhibiting anything similar, you know, those are all, um, those are all in our consult questions, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, diagnostics, my diagnostic list is pretty short. I mean, because we're talking like when we're talking our diagnostics, we're going to assume because <laughs> it's internal medicine that they've already had our basic diagnostics done. So again, not specific to stricture, but to an internal medicine patient to make sure, you know, why are they vomiting or regurgitating? You're, you're going to do your CBC, your chem, your electrolytes, <clears throat> you know, you're probably going to want to do like an ultrasound to see, is there something in the abdomen? So <clears throat> our diagnostics again, for most every internal medicine patient. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the basic, like you want to rule out all the metabolic diseases first. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cause especially like an, an ultrasound can help you see that lymphadenopathy. It's not necessarily going to help with the stricture. Like uh, it can, it can definitely a stricture in the abdomen. Yeah. Cause you're going to see, you're going to see that obstructive pattern. Yes. But there's no form body, but all of a sudden you see like a narrowing of the lumen. Yeah. So you could definitely see that. Does it help with the esophagus the though? No, esophagus, forget it. <laughs> and then abdominal strictures, 100%. Yeah. But for stricturing specifically, like once you've ruled out all of our normal metabolic diseases, such as Addison or thyroid disease and all of the above that can cause vomiting, AKA every internal medicine disease, um, <laughs> barium contrast, like x-ray studies are using, are, are very good to help determine, um, a possible stricture. And typically what happens is we'll use like barium liquid or barium mixed with food, um, is usually very diagnostic of an esophageal stricture because it'll show it's like location and the length of the stricture. And especially if you mix it with food, it just makes it a little bit more dense. So it doesn't go straight down into the stomach. Now, mind you, if there's a stricture, it's not going to go straight down into the stomach. Um, <laughs> usually. And are you doing, are you doing x-rays for this? Yes. Okay. Um, and a lot of times that is done at the referring veterinarian. Hmm. Here's my little mini tip is that like barium, because it can be aspirated, especially if we do suspect an esophageal stricture, that's dangerous. Um, if it goes in the lungs. Uh -huh. So using something else like, uh, ionohexol. Yeah. Um, is very good instead. It's just watery and sticky but same thing you can mix it with food and it'll still light up um yeah but then the food if they aspirate would still be a problem yes i mean either way it's hmm. still it still can be there's a risk that you should discuss with a client when doing right. an esophagram huh. yeah well and and we don't really do them honestly no I don't remember um, the last time I've done a swallow study. <laughs> right. And, and that was, um, there, there was a question, I think in one of the internal medicine groups, uh, recently about doing an esophagram with fluoroscopy. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, that's on typically, here. Yeah. And, and we have fluoroscopy in my hospital, but we don't do swallow studies. Like I, I don't, and honestly, I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's because my doctors just aren't as familiar with like the protocols and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So if we have a patient that needs a swallow study, we will typically refer it to UC Davis mm -hmm. um, for a swallow study, just because they obviously ha have done more than we have. Um, and it, you know, it's, it is, it is a very specific test because, you know, the nice thing about fluoroscopy versus x-rays is fluoroscopy, you're seeing 
in live time. So it's like yeah. x-rays versus an ultrasound, right? You're going to see peristaltic waves. You're going to see the, the actual swallow, like the whole thing versus like x-ray. You're just getting a snapshot. Yeah. So, you got to give it and then quickly, but yet safely turn the patient on its side <laughs> without right? like having them aspirate and like snap a film. Yeah. So, so yeah. So fluoroscopy esophagram is, is better for diagnosing strictures and stuff like that. So, yeah. But in our practice, typically what we'll do to try to diagnose a stricture, especially if we just strongly suspect one is we'll do (laughs) an, um, we'll do a scope procedure. So whether this is a colonoscopy or an esophagoscopy, esophagoscopy, (laughs) uh, Mind you, we're never just looking at the esophagus. We always go down into the stomach and do autumn too. So it's a whole upper GI. I I was going to say it's an upper lower for us. Yeah. (laughs) We don't Um, just, uh, if we're looking at the colon, we usually, I mean, uh, okay. I take that back. We've done maybe one or two, just like specific colonoscopies, mm -hmm. but most of the times, if we're going to go up the butt, we're going to do an upper lower. Yeah, we, we, we're going to look for disease. Now the downside to an endoscopy procedure though, is typically, I mean, typically, I guess there's a few cases where maybe the stricture is not quite small enough yet, but usually Mm -hmm. you can't allow, like it doesn't allow for visualization beyond the stricture unless a ballooning is performed because typically these strictures are small enough where even the scope can't pass through it. And if you try to push the scope through it, you can cause more damage. Um, so yeah, typically, like I said, a lot of times when we get these over, it's already been diagnosed with a stricture. So we usually diagnose the stricture. Yeah. But, but, but we usually diagnose it with scoping. Yeah. We've done that. And then we're like, oh, we need to, stri- we need to die, you know, do balloon dilation. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Well, treatment then is usually balloon catheter dilation is the most successful. Um, Some cases will require multiple dilation procedures. And this kind of follows, at least we follow the same rule as like the onset of symptoms. It's usually one to two weeks. We'll repeat the procedure. Usually we try to do it weekly if they are still showing symptoms of regurgitation. Um, Especially if it's a really bad stricture, yes. Um, because there's only so much opening that you can do at a time without causing like damage, like a like a, a rupture. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes if it's really bad, you know, we'll we'll do up to a certain amount and then stop and then you know let the body kind of relax and heal and you know and then we'll go in again and. Mm-hmm. I have really good pictures more, so. of the last one we did. So the way we do it is a balloon catheter dilation is like, think of the balloon on the end of a fully, except for these balloons are like longer, like almost like a pencil length and they fill up with, uh, and they're a little bit sturdier. They're not as springy. Yeah. They're or at they're, least they're, the ones that we have They're They're like a th- thicker plastic. Yes. A much thicker plastic. Again, they can't rupture. And it has this like special like (laughs) syringe device that you can like, so you can set the pressure on it, which blows my mind because like, if I hand push, I can only ever get to like the smallest amount of like PSI on it. (laughs) But this delight, this, uh, balloon dilator thing, it like, it can go up two times as much. And I'm like, 
I'm going to pop something because like, I, uh, it makes me nervous yeah. because I like to be able to feel the resistance of the esophagus itself. And with that thing, I can't feel the resistance, uh, you know, and like, I've never, I've never done it manually. I've only ever done it with the, the PSI measure thing. Yeah. I guess it's just like, I don't know. I like to be in control. So like, I like to feel like I've, we've done it manually because like we've had strictures that are so small that like even the smallest balloon is like scary. Uh, and it's just like, ugh it freaks me out because like you want it to bleed because you want to tear some of that scar tissue. Yeah. But yeah, like the most severe complication of this is esophageal perforation because the scar tissue is still pretty fragile. You only want like little tears in it, but yeah, if you put too much pressure on it, the whole thing can just. Uh, That's what I like about the syringe device is because it it tells you the PSI. Mm -hmm. It's PSI. Yeah, I think so. I just used it a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I was going to say, we just looked at it. Um, it tells you the PSI, and so your doctor can specifically tell you, okay, go up to mm-hmm. 10, and then go up to 20. And yeah, then and you just turn it. 10, so. Yeah. yeah. It's nice. Still, still scary. <laughs> um, however, esophageal stents have been used in some strictures that have just, like, not been well managed with just balloon dilation. Wow. Like, yeah. Yeah, our, our really severe... Stent? sounds horrible i know our really severe frenchie that we had we recommended a stent because the esophageal stricturing was so bad that like we balloon is it a is it an intraluminal or an extra luminal stent i would think it'd have to be an extra luminal stent i don't know any like once i start looking into surgical procedures i'm like and we're out <laughs> like, well because i mean so intraluminal because so like it's the same as like tracheal stents right so the intraluminal is more is is a more recent technique um i would think in the esophagus man because this is what i so this is why i'm asking because if it's an intraluminal um stent so it would go inside the esophagus it's intraluminal. But i would think that it's intraluminal. Mm-hmm. I would think that that would irritate it so bad because of the whole peristaltic waves. Whereas like in a trachea, there are no peristaltic waves. But I mean, that honestly, I guess that explains why the complication rate is so high. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is limited by high rate of complications, including stent migration, stent shortening, stent breakage, reoccurrence of stricture, because again, that scar tissue could be stronger than the stent itself, yeah. um, infection, mega esophagus, because you're holding the esophagus open, um, right. overgrowth of tissue into the stent, which same thing, just kind of like limits the stent's capability of like holding that open, drooling, yeah. nausea, gagging, vomiting, regurge. Um, and then of course, like a tracheal esophageal fistula, which is like, right. Horrible. <laughs> no. And then it's like, it's unpredictably uh, tolerated by dogs. Like it, it's, you know, yeah, some dogs I don't think like, I've ever, I know my doctors have never talked to a client about doing it. We just, like I said, we just had the one case cause it was Oof. so severe and that, and our ballooning procedure was so, it was so difficult. And it just <laughs> like, we had to go in and do a second ballooning procedure and we're like, it's almost back to where it was after the first oh. one. And it was, it was just bad. And he's like, I don't recommend it because of, he's like, it's a lose-lose. Like 
we can recommend yeah. a stent procedure, but know that these complications are there. Yeah. Do you guys, um, when you do the dilation, do you ever do the like, um, oh God, I don't remember exactly because it's been a really long time since I've done it, but it's the steroid injection. Like there's this like little needle thing that you can poke through. Yeah. So it's really interesting and we don't do it super often, but it's like one of those ones where we think it's really bad. And it's like, it's, it's crazy. It's this like long, basically like catheter needle that you go through your scope and then you can inject like using a regular syringe and it pokes into the mucosa wherever you like tell it to. And then you can like inject the steroid into that area. And so it helps like with reducing inflammation in that area. Um, so we've done it a couple of times. God, I wish I could remember the name of the actual drug we use. Yeah. That's interesting. We've never done that. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find that information. Yeah. There also is the, um, option of surgical resection of a single stricture. Um, but same thing, it's also less successful. And I would imagine oh. because of scarring, I know I'm like, like just cutting a ring into a ring into a ring. <laughs> Let's just surgically like stricture down too. Oh yeah. No, esophagus, especially, you know, when we're talking about that now, however, when we're talking about strictures in the intestines, surgical resection for that is probably the most common unless it's the colon because again we hate cutting into the colon it's bad it never heals very well um so that's when we're doing balloon dilation and balloon dilation for esophageal stricture and colonic strictures are going to be the exact same way um we're going to use that same device do, you know, kind of slow stretching of that stricture to hopefully open it up enough, um, so that things can pass through. So, um, and it may require more than, than one procedure. Um, and like this kitten that we just had this week, we did the balloon dilation, um, because there was a stricture really close to the, the rectum. Um, and so this poor kitten (laughs) was, not having a fun time pooping. Um, and so we, we just did the dilation and, and we'll see how, um, how he recovers as far as like, you know, do we need to do it again or not? So, um, whenever we're talking about this with clients, you know, the, the critical healing time, like with any procedures that first 10 to 14 days after, um, like, especially the dilation or anything like that, you know, we're going to, we're going to tell them soft food only. Um, we're going to say, you know, there's going to be medications. So I think we usually do, uh, like, uh, sucralfate, um, just to coat things to help prevent further tissue trauma. Um, and then, you know, closely monitoring for recurrence of signs, especially if they, have gone away after the procedure. Right. And so if the, if the symptoms have gone away and the clients start noticing, they kind of slowly come back, we need to investigate further and see what's going on. Um, so client communication is going to be key for these guys. Um, just long-term. 
I feel like client communication is key with all of our patients. <laughs> right. <laughs> Internal medicine, just client communication. Uh, I know it's, it's funny. Cause my like emergency department's like, Oh God, it's your clients again. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of communication that happens. Okay. <laughs> They have questions. You need to be able to answer some of them. I'm like, the goal is to have like long-term diseases and not short-term diseases. And like, right. Oh my God. Well, I don't know. Short-term disease, like a foreign body. I'm cool with that. Oh yeah. Like the fixable ones are great, but when do we ever see fixable? Because really that's a surgical disease. (laughs) And then it's like, right. Unless it's an esophageal foreign body, then that's ours. And then we see it again for a stricture. I mean, oh God. I had one, um, it was a little white dog and this foreign body had sat in there for days. And like, when we finally pulled it out, it was one of those, like the client said, you either get it out with a scope that's or what, we're euthanizing. Yeah. And that's I'm what like, the potato oh. dog said too. And I was like, it's a potato and a little white dog. <sighs> I know. Right. And so you, you, you get it out and then it looks like freaking hamburger and you're just like, the size oh. of the stricture for sure which is and like those are always the ones that don't <laughs> right and that yeah. dog did great afterwards and i'm like are you sure yeah are you sure it's not regurgitating it's it's eating normally yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that that blows my mind every time i'm like there's no way this is not going to stricture and then like i'll call and check on them like every three days for like two and weeks they're straight like, they're great yeah You're like okay we haven't vomited since we saw you and i'm like are you sure are you sure you're sure there's not like some sneaky regurge going on? And yeah. Like, no, no, that's great. I'm like, oh, okay. No coughing, nothing. <laughs> like, well, and I wonder if part of that too is, is like the medications we send home, like sucralfate, you know, if we, if we're using that, if that helps prevent stricturing, I don't know. Yeah. Be interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Cause that's what we do too. Um, so my caution though, oddly enough that you talked about like the steroid injection, because I guess the I don't, interlesional. yeah, I guess I don't remember writing this. Well, to be fair, I did these show notes a couple weeks ago. Cause I was like on top right. of it for a day. <laughs> and, like, Yay. Um, but the use of corticosteroids either systemically or intralesionally um, to help prevent that stricture reformation is controversial. So there actually isn't any yeah. data that exists regarding the success of this therapy um, in dogs or cats. But, but it has been shown to be helpful in reducing reoccurrence in people. So I think that's why we do it. The intralesional. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll see if I can find the information for that injection thing. It's yeah. Pretty, it's interesting. I mean, well, and it, it's, it's, <laughs> I imagine not to be like, it's a teeny tiny needle. It's like, it's almost like intradermal. Like it's such a tiny little needle. Cause again, you're going through a scope. <laughs> so yeah. it's little, yeah it's the tip of the week so i think the tip of the week this week should be what yvonne said earlier about just being careful when recommending to clients to use hydrogen peroxide and maybe we shouldn't do that anymore to get dogs to vomit um especially I'll too if because... i can find the literature on that because yeah that'd be great i feel like the hydrogen peroxide controversy started i don't know maybe five ten years ago um, where a lot of emergency clinics just stop recommending it because there were so many complications with it. Um, so I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find the literature on it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, well, apomorphine works, works so well too. So yeah, it's yeah. like, although people don't have that at home. 
no, that is it's a bummer. Like to actually have like a client come in to vomit up a battery or something. But if you have Ugh. hydrogen peroxide and then vomit, it's just like very corrosive for the poor esophagus and yeah, get it. Unless you have sucralfate at home, like whatever. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. just do sucralfate. Do we are not suggesting people? I, no, <laughs> I'm just saying that if you're a technician, you have your pharmacy arsenal at home. Not that I would do it because that sounds horrible, but I don't actually have sucralfate. I don't think I have any either. Just, just (laughs) my bandaged material for my kids. Oh my God. So we were on the boat yesterday and the kids were like in the plus mud. And I was like, be careful for oyster shells and glass and like things like that. Cause I don't have any suture with me right now. And Bailey was like, you wouldn't take us to a hospital. I was like, I mean, I guess I would. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, Oh, what? (laughs) I was like, uh, yeah, I mean that's the. You're like, yes, I totally would do that. <laughs> wink, nod, nod to Matt because I, I told Matt I was like, I don't have any suture material. He's like, we have fishing line. I was like, see, he's been with me long enough to know. I'm like, we have fishing line. Yeah, but I don't have any needles, so I was like, oh god, we have fishing line. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. my husband and I are just meant to be. Like him and I are on the same wave- wavelength when it comes to just me. It's better off if I just repair something. So, right. Oh my God. So funny. Especially after our last incident where I had to bandage it for two weeks anyway. <laughs> our last incident. That was a couple years ago. I did not oh. fix Connor's head when he busted that open, even though they just put no. staples in it and I totally could have. Oh God. I totally could have just put those three staples in easily. He probably would have trusted no, me more than he had- trusted that doctor. I was gonna say you had to distract him I'm sure I had to hold him down yeah I held his face against my chest as they were like and I was like poor kid that's okay he'll he'll survive he's got a good scar to you know show oh my god he freaked out though the other day because he was on the trampoline and he fell and like hit his head on like the metal spring like it wasn't bad but like his instant reaction was to go holy crap I must have busted my head open again like I must be bleeding again and uh, so he came inside. He's like, am I bleeding? I was like, no. I was like, what do you do? He's like, I hit my head on the metal spring. I was like, are you okay? He's like, well, not if I'm bleeding. And I was like, you're not, <laughs> not bleeding. bleeding. Yeah. I'm like, oh, kids. you're not bleeding. So are you okay? And he's like, are you sure I didn't bust it open again? I was like, I'm sure. And he's like, okay, then yes, I I'm okay. It. And I was like, okay. Oh my God. He's so he's something else. So I finally cut his hair. So story time before we do the question of the week, apparently. Oh my God. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So I signed him up for jujitsu and he was like at practice and stuff like that. Cause now we have practice three days a week and his hair was in his face. And I was like, well, this other little boy puts his hair up in a little man bun and it's super cute. You don't want to do that. He's like, no, he looks like a girl. And I was like, it's cute. He doesn't look like a girl. He looks like a little boy. And Connor was like, no, I'm not putting my hair up in a ponytail. And I was like, okay. So I finally caved and I cut it a little bit and I'm super bummed because I cut all the, like it's, it's brown now. He has brown hair now versus blonde. I know it's dark and I get done cutting it and I like wipe him off. And mind you, I did a really good job cutting his hair. I was really impressed with myself. Like (laughs) he looks in the mirror and he's like kind of moving it out of his face. And he's like, oh, I look so much cuter now. And I was like, 
I was like, oh, no. so no shortage of self-confidence in my family, apparently. Well, oh I mean, did God. you just hear about how well I bragged cutting his hair? So it's like, <laughs> I get it. Like, but he was like, I just, I look so much better. And then Matt got home from work like a few hours later. He's like, daddy, look at my hair. Don't I look so much cuter now? I look so much cuter now. I was like, easy. Kid. How old is he now? He's six. Oh boy. I know. I know. You're in trouble. He's going to be um, a ladies man. I'm he so is. Much he, oh, he he already loves like the and he has a type too like poor kid oh Oh. god he does (laughs) oh gosh he likes those little tan girls with dark hair and i'm like oh connor i know he prefers older women though he is Oh, oh yeah anyway and now for the question of the week so this week's question of the week is I guess, I guess, what is your experience with strictures? Have you seen an esophageal stricture? Have you seen uh, a duodenal or colonic stricture? If so, what did you guys do about it? Um, you know, have you done any balloon procedures or do you guys, you know, send it somewhere if you're in like general practice? Cause I'm sure general practice is not ballooning. Um, so yeah, just let us know what your guys' experience is with strictures. Uh, I'll try to put some pictures up because I have some, I have some fun pictures. Well, I mean, you know, by internal medicine, fun pictures. I mean, they're gross and, but they're cool. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely <laughs> have pictures of the, that really bad structure that we have. Nice. All right. Cool. Um, anything else this week that you can think of? I don't think so. I think we covered pretty much everything. Nice. All right. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. Keep getting your learn on. Let us know what's up and um, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good week, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.